0: We've all heard it before as a reason that people do not attend church. Usually goes something like this. The church is full of what? Hypocrites. The church is full of hypocrites. So I'm not going to go to church. You've heard it before. I know, I know you've heard I've heard it before. What are we to make of that attitude? Do they have a point? Is that a legitimate reason? Not to be a part of the church? Well, we're going to answer those questions and think through that this morning as we study Acts. We're walking through this book. We've made it to the end of chapter 4. So turn there with me, Acts chapter 4. We're going to begin reading in Acts chapter 4, verse 34. We're going to read down through Chapter 5, verse 11. Acts chapter 4, verse 34. As you find your place, I want to ask you if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy word. Acts chapter 4, verse 34, speaking of the early New Testament church, it says, There was not a needy person among them. A man, and by the way, you know the the verse references were put there by man. So that's kind of an artificial division, I think. I think this is just one passage. It says there, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived, notice that word contrived, you've contrived this deed in your heart. You have not lied to man, but to God. The feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray together. Sovereign Lord, you are the great I Am. And what a privilege to gather with this faith family and to know that you are here with us. Lord, to know that your presence is here. The great I Am is here. And God, I pray that this time of Bible study would be life-changing. Would you, Lord, by the power of the Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the truths of Scripture and we might Lord, have a, a desire to apply those truths to our lives. We, have, we might have a desire to obey those truths. And Lord, as your Spirit moves among us, may the name of Jesus be lifted up in this place. Because it's all about Jesus. And so, Lord... Grant us the grace to grow through this study of your word. Grant us the grace to lift up the matchless name of Jesus. And Lord, I ask that you would establish my steps in your word today, and we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. A pretty interesting and a little bit scary story, right? Pretty amazing what we just read here. And we've got to think through this and have some categories in our, in our minds to, to kind of wrap our, our hearts around what's happening in this passage. Now just to set the overall context, you know that the book of Acts is the record of the church that was birthed on the day of Pentecost after Jesus Christ uh, ascended back to heaven. And it's the record of how this church grew and how this church reached its city and its, its surrounding area and, and reached the uttermost parts of the earth with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a fascinating story of the power of the Spirit and the power of the Word that are present in a body of believers that want to take the gospel to the lost. And we've seen the story unfold and we've seen that because of the growth of Christianity, that the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders who did not want to lose their influence, are growing antsy, and they began to intimidate and threaten the believers, saying, you don't need to talk any more about Jesus Christ. So they're facing the outward threat of intimidation and persecution. But here we see that Satan shifts gears a bit to try to infiltrate and disrupt the church from the in. Sigh to stop the advance of the gospel. And so as we walk through this passage together, we're going to see three realities. Three realities in the church. Three realities in the church. Number one, we're going to be reminded of the troubling reality of hypocrites in the church. The troubling reality of hypocrites in the church. There in Acts chapter 5, verse 1, it says a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back him, uh, for himself. Some of the the proceeds brought it uh, brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Now look at this next question. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? So what Ananias and Sapphira did was contrived, thought up in their hearts. Now that word contrived there is a translation of the same word that's translated laid in verse 2. Look what it says in verse 2. It says, With his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. That word laid is the same word for contrived. So here's what's being said here. As... They laid the money at the apostles' feet. Something was going on in their heart that was the total opposite of their external actions. They were laying down money, but in their heart, they were laying down a plan that was built on deception and hypocrisy. In other words, Peter, by using the same word, is saying that what they did publicly and what was going on in their heart were two different things and here's what we need to learn from that you know that you can do something externally publicly that is at odds with what's truly going on in your heart right you, you can do that it, it, it's called hypocrisy so as we think about hypocrisy i want to just share with you the definition of hypocrite what what, what do we mean we use the word hypocrite well this definition uh, comes from dictionary.com it means a person who pretends to have virtues, moral or religious beliefs, principles, etc. that he or she does not actually possess. So it's pretending to be someone that you are really not. And it usually is used in the context of religious activity. So pretending to be religious or spiritual when really you are not. Warren Weersby writes... Hypocrisy is deliberate deception, trying to make people think, listen, we are more spiritual than we really are. Trying to make people think we're more spiritual than we really are. What was going on with Ananias and Sapphira? They were trying to make people think they were more sacrificial, more spiritual than they really were. They were trying to make the church believe they were giving all the proceeds from the sale of the land, just like Barnabas did. But they were holding back some for themselves. Now, would it have been all right if they would have brought part of the proceeds and publicly said, we're keeping this and we're giving some of the sale of the land to the church? Would that have been okay? Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the, the sin comes in them trying to deceive everyone and thinking they're giving all of it. They're trying to look more spiritual than they really were. So that's where this word hypocrite comes into play. In classical Greek, the word hypocrite was used of actors in plays. In in Greek tragedy or Greek drama or Greek comedy, uh, the actors would, would put a mask over their face to convey the emotion of their character. If they were supposed to be grieving, they would have a sad face over their their face. If they were uh, a a happy character, a joyful character, they would have a smiling mask they would hold over their face. And and that that play acting was called uh, Hippocritus, being a hypocrite, acting out a part. And it came to be used of people that were acting more religious and spiritual than they really were. A hypocrite is someone that keeps a mask over their face. They're trying to keep the spiritual mask up all the time so that you think they are farther along in their journey with God than they really are. That's a hypocrite. I read a story just this past week about a teenage boy in West Palm Beach, Florida. And the opening line of the story said this, a teenage boy wearing a white lab coat and carrying a stethoscope masqueraded as a doctor at a Florida hospital for a month until his Doogie Hauser act was derailed this week. So this 17-year-old young man found a lab coat, said doctor on it, put a stethoscope around his neck, and started making rounds in the hospital started walking in with other physicians and watching what was going on, and people thought he was a physician, and he got away with it for a month. Was he a physician? No. Had he been to medical school? No. Did he know what he was doing? No. But he made everybody think, through his appearance, that he was a real medical doctor. That's hypocrisy, right? That's hypocrisy. And that's what's happening in this passage with Ananias and so fine, that's the definition of a hypocrite. But but how does a person get to this place? Well, in this text, we're going to see the making of a hypocrite. How a person gets to a place of, uh, 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 of this level of hypocrisy. Where does the hypocrite come from? Well, first of all, satanic influence. Satanic influence. Look what it says there in chapter 5, verse 3, after Ananias brings the proceeds from the sale of the land. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So, who filled his heart to lie? Satan did. He is under the influence of Satan himself. In other words, Satan and the demonic realm loves to move us to hypocrisy. Because the demonic realm understands that hypocrisy ruins lives. And hypocrisy harms the witness of the church. And so Satan loves to work in our lives to move us, to give us a desire to be hypocrites, to portray ourselves as more religious or spiritual than we really are. Now it's interesting to note that earlier in the book of Acts, Satan brings intimidation and persecution from without to stop the advance of the church. But he will also, listen, he will also attempt to destroy from within. What we're going to learn in Acts is that Satan will intimidate to try to stop us from preaching the gospel. He'll try to bring external pressure to bear on us so we'll be uh, uh, fearful in sharing Christ. But not only will Satan intimidate, listen, Satan also attempts to infiltrate. He wants to get in the middle of what's happening in God's church and sow seeds of hypocrisy so he can stop the advance of the gospel. Satan will tempt you, listen, to put on a religious show for others. He will tempt you to put on a religious show for others. He'll give you this desire to make yourself be or portray yourself to be more spiritual, spiritual, then you really are. And we can just go through the list of areas in our, in our church culture, in our society, that we see hypocrisy playing out. But I'll let the Holy Spirit do that in your life. Satanic influence. Secondly, where does a hypocrite come from? Not only satanic, satanic influence, but a desire for human praise. A desire for human praise. Look what it says there in Acts chapter 5. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here was the sham. They were only giving a part of the sale of the land, but they wanted everyone to think they were giving all of it. Why? So that they could get the same recognition that Barnabas had gotten at the end of chapter 4. I mean, they changed Barnabas' name. His name is Joseph. They start calling him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. They change his name. They thought, I want somebody to give me a good nickname too. So I'm going to make everybody think that I'm bringing all of my proceeds of the sale of my property to help others in need when it's only part of it. What's happening here is there is a desire for human praise. Now I want you to hear what I'm about to say carefully. When you care more about what people think than what God thinks, you are in trouble. Just let that settle in on you for a moment. When you care more about what people think than what God thinks, you are headed for hypocrisy. And so a hypocrite comes from satanic influence and a desire for human praise. But third, there's a disconnect Between external actions and the heart. Look what he says in verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, it did not remain your own. After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you can drive this deed in your heart? So he's saying you're doing one thing externally. There's something totally different going on in your heart. Heart. Now, you know who used the word hypocrite a lot during his time on this earth? Jesus. Jesus used that word quite a bit if you read through the Gospel of Matthew. And, and when he's, he's using the word hypocrite, he, he describes it. He illustrates what a hypocrite looks like. He says over in Matthew 23 that a hypocrite is like a, a cup that's been cleaned on the outside... But on the inside, it's still dirty. Jesus said that's what a hypocrite is. And so externally, we make ourselves look clean. We make ourselves look good. We make ourselves look spiritual. But on the inside, our heart is a mess. We're dirty. Our heart's not pure. We're not focused upon the Lord. We're not walking with God. And there's this disconnect between our external actions and what's actually happening on the inside. He used another illustration. Jesus said that hypocrites are like whitewashed tombs. A tomb that has been painted and decorated on the outside, and it looks beautiful from the outside, but on the inside, what's in the tomb? Death. You know what Jesus is saying? Listen. It's possible to look very religious, and very spiritual, and very godly, and be dead on the inside. It's possible, listen, to be a Baptist or to be a church member and not even be saved. Do you know that? It is. That's what Jesus said. A hypocrite is like a, a whitewashed tomb. So where does hypocrisy come from? It comes from satanic influence and this disconnect between heart and external actions, the desire for human praise. But last, hypocrisy comes from a deceitful manner of life. Look what he says in Acts chapter. 5 verse 4, why, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So he gets to the heart of the matter. Hey, Ananias, you are lying. Your deception is dishonest. You are living a deceitful life. And that's hypocrisy, isn't it? I mean, if you are trying to carry out this, this spiritual facade for others to be impressed by, then you are lying. You are bearing false witness. That's what it says. Hypocrisy comes from a deceitful manner of life. So we see in this text the, the troubling reality Of hypocrites in the church. Are there hypocrites in the church? The answer is yes. Yes, there are. There are people that are not the real deal. There are. It's the reality of of the kingdom. The kingdom is growing. People are getting saved, genuinely saved. But Satan is also sowing tares among the wheat. And people are putting on a religious show when they may be dead on the inside. And it's even possible for Christians who've been truly saved that try to promote themselves as being more spiritual than they really are. Hypocrisy. So we've seen the troubling reality of hypocrites in the church. But number two, I want you to see the awesome reality of God's presence in the church. The awesome reality of God's presence in the church. One of the key characteristics, one of the key trademarks of a true Bible-believing New Testament church is this. God is in her midst. And that's an awesome reality, right? God is in her midst. And, And God in this passage is showing the believers in Jerusalem that he is there. The awesome reality of God's presence in the church look what it says in verse 5 when ananias heard these words he fell down and breathed his last verse 10 immediately she sapphira fell down at his feet and breathed her last now after ananias falls down and dies look what it says in verse 6 or verse 5 great fear came upon all who heard it And after Sapphira dies, look what it says in verse 11. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon uh, all who heard of these things. Why did God act, listen, so quickly, so decisively, so severely? I mean, It happens quick, right? Immediately the word is, is used. And we're not talking about just chastisement. I mean, they drop dead. I mean, they just die. So why did God do that? I mean, do we need to be concerned about that here? Say you're, you're in your connect group and you hand someone your, your tithing envelope and you say, here's my tithing envelope, but you really only wrote 9% of your actual amount there and it's not 10%. Is God going to strike you dead? If not, then why does it happen here? Why does God move so quickly, so decisively, so severely? Well, I'm going to give you several answers to that question. First of all, God wants his people to understand his holiness. God wants his people to understand his holiness. Verse 5, verse 11, it says, Great fear, magos phobos, phobos where we get the word phobia from, fear, magos, mega, great, great fear came upon the church and all in the surrounding area who heard about it. Can you imagine these conversations taking place in Jerusalem? Hey, did you hear what happened today? This guy named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they sold some land and wanted everybody to think they were giving all their land to the church to help needy people, but it wasn't all the all of their proceeds. It was just part of it. They wanted everybody to think it was all of it. But you know what God did? God God struck them dead. Can you imagine people going, wow? Maybe you shouldn't play with God. Maybe you should take God seriously. You know what happened here? people began to take God more seriously. That's what the word fear means. They had this deep reverence for God. They began to take Him more seriously. And so God wanted His people in this passage, and He wants us that are studying it today, He wants us to understand that He is a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of grace, but He is also a God of holiness that we are to take seriously with our lives. He's a God of absolute moral perfection. The Bible says he is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Secondly, why did God act so quickly, decisively, and severely? God wants his people to understand the seriousness of hypocrisy. He wants us to understand that hypocrisy is a big deal. Verses 3 and 4, he says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You're lying to God. You're living out this fraud before God. And look what it says in verse 9. Sapphira, Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Why is hypocrisy such a big deal? Because you are living a deceitful life before the very presence of God. You're not fearing Him. You care more about what people think than what He thinks. And God... Strikes Ananias and Sapphira did, so that they and we will understand the seriousness of hypocrisy. This act of judgment served as a deterrent to anyone else that wanted to go the way of the hypocrite. You think anyone else in the church wanted to lie about the amount they were bringing? (laughs) No. No. God was deterring them against hypocrisy. John Piper says it in a very stark way. Listen to what he writes. The reason they drop dead is to give a stunning warning to the whole church that phony Christians will all end up this way sooner or later. Listen to me. You may be here this morning and you're trying to put on an appearance to others, but you're dead on the inside. You're not a true born-again believer in Christ, and you're trying to make everybody think that you're spiritual. God may not strike you dead this morning. Matter of fact, He probably won't. I'll show you why this is a special instance in a moment. But if you don't genuinely get saved, one day you will die a great death in that awful place called hell. A death that never ends. Eternal destruction separated from the very presence of God. So let Ananias and Sapphira cause you not to walk but to run to Jesus and say, listen, I want him to change me on the inside. I want to be a genuine, true believer in Jesus Christ. I don't want to keep up the sham and the pretense. I need salvation. This story is a warning against the seriousness of hypocrisy. But then third, this was a pivotal time in church history. Why so decisively? Why so severely? Why did he strike them dead? This was a pivotal time in church history. This was the beginning of Satan's attempt to infiltrate. And he wanted them to understand how serious this was. This was the first, um, again, first attempt of Satan to derail the church. This is the very beginning of the New Testament church. As a matter of fact, look what it says down at verse 11. It says in Acts 5 verse 11, Great fear came upon the whole church. ecclesia. Now let me tell you something cool. That's the first time the word church is used in Acts. We're at the very beginning of the church. And at the very beginning, God wants to make a, a stark statement about hypocrisy and about Satan's attempts to infiltrate the body of believers. Here's what we see in the Bible. God often reminded his people of his holiness during times of new beginnings. If you go through the Bible and you look at new beginnings for God's people, you often see God act in a very severe manner to set the tone of his holiness for the people of God. For example, when God wanted to send Moses to Egypt and say to Pharaoh, let my people go, he caught him at the burning bush He sent him on his way, but at the end of chapter 4, something interesting happens. The Bible says that Moses had not circumcised his son like he had told uh, the descendants of Abraham to do. So the Bible says that one night God was coming to kill Moses. And his wife, Zipporah, had to intervene and circumcise uh, their son so that Moses wouldn't be killed by God. So at the beginning of this this great exodus that God's going to do, God needed to remind Moses, Moses, deal with areas of neglect in your life. Moses, take me seriously. Moses, do what I've told you to do. And at the beginning of the exodus, he had to set the stage and remind Moses of his holiness. In Leviticus, shortly after the... The tabernacle was fashioned according to the instructions of God, this place that would serve as the the center of worship for God's people as they were in the wilderness. God killed... Nadab and Abihu, because they offered false fire to the Lord. They, they took matters in their own hands. Instead of obeying God's prescriptions for how the worship was supposed to happen, they said, we're going to worship the way we want to worship. And they offered this strange sacrifice that God did not prescribe, and so God struck them dead. This was the beginning of the tabernacle worship of Israel. Where his presence would come, God's presence would come among his people. At the very beginning, he needed to set the tone. I am holy. Take me seriously. 2 Samuel 6. It's the beginning of the ark coming to the capital city of Jerusalem. A new era among God's people. The ark would be there in that great city. His presence would come down among his people. They would worship him in that city. And as the Ark of the Covenant is being transported to Jerusalem, there's a man named Uzzah. And the cart shifts and the Ark is about to hit the ground. And Uzzah just reaches out his hand to steady the Ark so it would not hit the ground. You know what happens? Uzzah is struck dead by God. Why? I mean, he's just trying to stop the Ark from being damaged. You know why? Because God said... No one touches the ark. There's poles. There are rings uh, 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 attached to the ark. You put the poles through. You carry it by poles. You don't touch the ark. It symbolizes my presence. You can't approach me on your own terms. So at the beginning of this era of, of worship in Jerusalem, where the ark of the covenant was there in the center of the city, God wanted to set the tone reminding them, Hey, I am holy. You know what happens after that? The ark is David leaves the ark where it is, basically, and says, Hey, we, we don't want to deal with this, but later he says we need to get it to Jerusalem. So when they go back to get the ark, you know what they do? They use poles. <laughs> they learn their lesson. Take God seriously. And so we see throughout the Bible that at the very beginning of, of a new uh, movement of God, God often sets the tone with severe judgment as a stark reminder that He is holy. As a matter of fact, F.F. F. Bruce sees a further analogy. He says the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts is what the story of Achan is to the book of Joshua. Remember Achan? After God gave the Israelites a great victory in Jericho, he said, don't take anything uh, that you're not supposed to take. He gave them instructions, and Achan took some things for himself, some, some, some money for himself, and God starts coming against Israel. They try to go fight this little city of Ai, and they're defeated soundly. And they realize, hey, there's sin in the camp. They cast lots. They realize it was Achan. He disobeyed God, brought something that he was not supposed to bring back from the battle. You know what they do? According to God's instructions, they kill Achan. Wow. Why? The beginning of this conquest of the promise. This is, this is the beginning of their time in the promised land. A new beginning for God's people. God wanted to remind them, I am holy. Got it? That's why this happens. And so we see the, the, the awesome reality of God's presence. We are called to fear Him and serve Him with genuine hearts. Right? But there's the third thing very quickly. I want you to see the encouraging reality of godly people in the church. The encouraging reality of godly people in the church. Back up with me to Acts chapter 4, verse 34. The Bible says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold. So people began to sell their their things, their property, their houses, and take money, and they put it in a a central place to begin to meet the needs of Christians in that church. Pretty extraordinary. It says they, they brought the proceeds and laid them at the apostles' feet as if to say to the leaders, we want you to determine how to best use these funds. And they were distributed to each as any had need, verse 35. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Sold a field that belonged to him, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Yes, there are Ananiases and Sapphira's in the church, hypocrites, just playing a role, just acting out spirituality when their heart is far from God. But listen to me and hear me carefully, there are also Barnabases in the church. There are also Barnabases in the church. The encouraging reality of godly people in the church. Barnabas is an example of genuine compassion. He sells his field because he wants to help people. So he's a model of compassion. Barnabas is an example of genuine encouragement. His name is changed. Hey, you're so encouraging, we're going to call you Barnabas, son of encouragement. And by the way, we have not heard the last of Barnabas. He plays a major role in the expansion of God's church throughout the book of Acts. We'll see a lot from a Barnabas in the coming weeks and months. And so he's an example of genuine compassion, genuine encouragement by God's grace. Listen, there are genuine believers in the church. Over in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul's writing to his young protege, the pastor of the church in Ephesus, Timothy. And he says to Timothy, he says, You are... A man of genuine faith. You know what the word genuine is in, in Greek language? The, the letter A is placed at the front of a word to negate the meaning of the word. So that word genuine that Paul calls young Timothy is the word "hypocritos" hypocrite, with an A on the front. You're an, you're an ah hypocritos. In other words, you're not a hypocrite. That's what the word genuine means. And there are people in the church of the living God that are genuine believers by God's grace. Now listen, I did not say perfect. Did you hear me say perfect? I didn't say perfect. If you're looking for perfect, you're usually going to to be sorely disappointed. But the church does have Barnabas's Genuine believers in Christ. Who really want to make a difference? We got home from church this past Wednesday night, and Claire said, "I love my church family. I just love my church family. You know why she said that? Because she was encouraged by the people of the point. She was encouraged by people that truly care for her and love the Lord and want to make a difference. You need to understand that, yes, they're hypocrites, but there are also people who are the real deal. And, and someone might say, wait, I see all the hypocrisy in the church. People who are members of the church and call themselves Christians and they act a certain way in their home or in their neighborhood or on the job, and they're hypo- I see all the hypocrisy everywhere. Listen, there's a lot you don't see, too. There's a lot you don't see. You don't see a layman in our church that takes the lead in dealing with benevolence needs in the life of our church. He goes and sits with families and walks them through their needs and helps them and encourages them. And just goes above and beyond. Yesterday we opened our, our church facility for uh, a funeral. It was a tragedy in our community this past A week or two weeks ago, and and they needed a large place to meet, and so we opened up our building, and every seat in here was full. Every seat was occupied for this funeral. It was a huge, uh, there was a huge response, people coming. What you you didn't see is you didn't see people uh, in our church serving in the kitchen, helping folks out, sweeping, mopping, moving tables and chairs. You didn't see that. People that really care about our community really want to make a difference you, you don't see the widow in our church that is going to minister to others in nursing homes sitting there with people who who can't leave their room or they're 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 bound to that 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 nursing home facility and they go and sit there with them and encourage them and pray with them and read scripture to them and love them you see you don't see that and I could go on. You don't see the people on their knees praying for your soul. You don't see that. So yes, there are hypocrites in the church. Congratulations, Sherlock, you figured it out. But I want you to know, there are also Barnabases. Real people. Not perfect, but real people that love Jesus and really want to make a difference. So here's the application. Very quickly, I've got to close. Number one, be a Barnabas, not an Ananias. (laughs) Right, okay? got to choose between Barnabas and Ananias. Be a Barnabas. Be an encourager. Be real. Be genuine. Be born again. Serve the Lord. Don't be an actor. Don't be a, a spiritual actor. Be a Barnabas. Number two, when you encounter a hypocrite, pray for them, but don't run from Jesus and his bride. You know, we're more willing to give restaurants second chances than we are to give the church a second chance. Right? Well, so and so was a hypocrite and they 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 hurt my feelings or, you know, I don't like what they did and so I'm done with the church. Well, you've had a bad meal before, but I bet you go out to eat this week. Right? You give restaurants a second chance. What about the bride of Christ? The church of the living God. Jesus loves his bride. And the church is not perfect. Listen, the church is not perfect. But God is doing something in his church. He is making us and growing us and changing us and transforming us. And one day he will bring his bride home to heaven. When you encounter a hypocrite, pray for them. But don't let them derail the whole deal for you. What does, Listen. What does their hypocrisy have to do with Jesus? What does their hypocrisy have to do with the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave? Their hypocrisy does not change one iota the fact that Jesus, in his grace, saves sinners. So just, hey, pray for him. but, But listen, run to Jesus. And then third. When you encounter a Barnabas, thank them and God for their life of encouragement. When you do come across a Barnabas, just say thank you. Acknowledge how God's using them in your life. And thank God, because God's the one that makes Barnabases, right? It's all God's grace. If there's any Barnabases in our church, it's because of God's grace. So thank God that God is doing something in those around you. And you see it and you're grateful for it. Thank God for the Barnabases. Will you bow your head and close your eyes for a moment? I could go on and on, but let me just say this. How does God want you to respond to what He said to you today from His Word?